You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning. Good, good, all right, we're here. Uh, We are in the end of our uh, series in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, feel free to slip your hand up and someone can come around and put one in your hand so you can read along uh, with us. It'll be on the screen as well, much of it. We've come to the end of our study now in Paul's two letters to the church in Thessalonica. First and second Thessalonians are two letters from Paul. And from the very beginning, we highlighted that Paul's main goal, it seems in these letters, was to encourage and build up the church, to urge them to keep going in the midst of intense persecution, in the midst of questions and false ideas swirling around them about what's going to happen next, in the midst of a culture that is hostile to them and their faith, Paul says, remember what you've been taught. Hold fast to what you know to be true and keep going. It seems to be his theme throughout both of these letters. And honestly, after this season of life for pretty much every human on the planet, and after a long season of challenge, even for us as a church, that I think, and we think this is a fitting encouragement for us as well. What is it that we know to be true, right? We've heard with our own ears God's call on our, life, on our lives as his disciples. We've, we've, we've seen and experienced God's call on us as a, as a church. What's our mission together as a church? Do we remember these things in the midst of all the noise and turmoil? What encouragement do we need to keep going and remain faithful in pursuit of all that God has called us to? Our hope in First and Second Thessalonians is to give us this encouragement That we wouldn't be quickly shaken by the things that tend to shake us. That we would be strengthened. That we would have the ability by the Holy Spirit to walk by faith with confidence. Confidence that God is. That he will be faithful to carry out all that he's promised for us and in us and through us. For our good and for his glory. So today, we turn to the final chapter in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to read a charge from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to get to work. That's what Paul focuses on here in chapter 3. It has been 2,000 plus trips around the sun for us since Jesus ascended into heaven, and since Paul wrote this little uh, letter to this fledgling church in Thessalonica, and he's essentially asking the question, how do we live here in between? Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. And in here in chapter 3, he gives us a a clue into what life in between these two days kind of looks like. Essentially asking that question, how do we live here in the in-between? And Paul's answer is this. He says it right here in verse 13. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. As you live between this day and that day, don't grow weary in doing good. So let's read our text for today, 2 Thessalonians. We're going to read the whole chapter, because why not? Verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord for us today. 
Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as is happening among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with, were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now our big takeaway, as I've said, from this multi-week study through these two letters from Paul is essentially to encourage and build up and help these young believers, this young fledgling church, answer the question, okay, how do we live life in light of what we now know, who we are in Christ, knowing full well that he has ascended to heaven and he said he's going to come back just as he left. How do we live between this day and that day? Because there's persecution and hardship. There are questions and fears about what's going to happen next as we near the day of the Lord. So how do we live here, not in fear? And Paul's closing encouragement is this. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't, don't give up. And as we look at chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2, we see that this is kind of what Paul tells us and shows us what this living looks like. I've broken it into these three things that we see in this passage. That Paul says, living between this day and that day, we pray with urgency, we work with diligence, and we wait. Full of peace. We, we pray, we work, and we wait. First, Paul opens verse 1. He's asking the church to pray for him. We've talked about this in this letter. The end of each of these sections, he kind of blesses them. There's a mini benediction where he's praying for them, that they would know something, that they would be comforted. And here he's saying, brothers and sisters, would you pray for us? And look at what Paul asks for. One, he says that the word of the Lord may spread, excuse me, may speed ahead and be honored. And two, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now remember, Paul is continuing on his mission. He's been with the the Thessalonians for a handful of weeks, really. He was driven out of that city, that town, by others in the community who did not like Paul's message, would rejected his message, persecuted Paul and the people who were with Paul, his missions partners, and the church, the young 
group of believers there, they were all pressured and persecuted. So he was kicked out of the city. And so Paul's just continuing to other places, establishing other churches. And along the way, if we read through the the New Testament history, Paul endures lots of hardships. He's beaten with sticks. Uh, People throw rocks at him till till they think he might be dead. Uh, He's shipwrecked. He's imprisoned. He knows the hardships that he's facing. And the first thing Paul asks for, the first thing he asks for is that the word of God would continue to advance. That's his primary request. First thing, guys, I know what you're facing. I know what I'm facing. Would you pray that the word of God would advance? That's his most important thing. And the second half of the verse shows, Paul uses them as an example. He says, pray that the word of God would advance to other places, that it would be honored and received in other places as it was received among you, as has happened among you. They're a living example of the word of God working because they believe. Just as the word of God, just as the gospel has come to you, Paul says, pray that that message would continue and advance in the world. That's the first thing that Paul asks them to pray for. The second thing, Paul says, would you pray for us that God would protect us and deliver us, rescue us from wicked and evil men who seek to do us harm? Because Paul says, why would they seek to do us harm? Because not everyone has faith. Not everyone believes like we believe, Paul says. In fact, some are quite hostile to the faith we profess. So while it doesn't surprise us, we pray that God would protect us. And these are the things that Paul asks his brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for him. Now, two quick takeaways here. One is for personal reflection and one maybe for practice for us. One, I don't know about you, but I tend to pray these things in the opposite order. I, I don't believe necessarily Paul's giving us a prescription for this is how you should always pray. But, but, Honestly, my prayers are often first with my own, begin first with my own needs, and then if I have time or if I remember it, the kingdom. So this serves as a bit of a heart check for me. This passage was yelling at me a little bit this week, asking me, hey, Jake, is your heart aligned with God's heart in your prayers? So y'all can take that for what you want. I'm just preaching to the choir here on myself. Are our hearts rightly aligned with the heart of God? Not that he doesn't care about our cares and concerns and worries, because he absolutely does. One of the things we talk about in our family when we go to prayer, and one of the things we pray with our kids when we're praying, is God, we thank you that you hear us. That we're not just throwing our prayers up into nothing, and maybe you'll grab onto a few. No, no, no. The Lord delights in his children. He loves to hear us come to him and, and, and ask him and, and seek him, admit our dependence on him. We just sang it. He loves that. And I wonder sometimes if I tend to get those things a little out of whack where I first think about my own needs and concerns and I'm less concerned for what God is up to. So that's just a little bit of a heart check. As a matter of practice, perhaps we might consider more as a church the way we pray for the church around the world, the church in hard places, or for our own missions partners like Kaylee, who you got to see this morning via phone technology. That's awesome. Right? That God would protect and deliver them. We can pray for that. Brothers and sisters around the globe this morning who are at risk for their lives for naming the name of Jesus. That we would pray that yes, God would protect them from persecution and harm. And that maybe even more than that, that God would see fit that through them, the word might continue. 
that the gospel might go out and bear fruit and advance in those places, that it would be honored and received. Then as an encouragement, Paul continues, even though some don't have faith, some don't believe as you do, it might attack you for it. Look what Paul says. But the Lord, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, which is a fantastic reminder because when evil things are done by human beings toward other human beings, we're called to remember that it's ultimately not where the battle lies. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, for our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Over Satan and his minions, all of his works and his effects, Paul says, the faithful Lord is the one who will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Even when man is acting not in good faith, God is the faithful one. He continues, verse 4, he's encouraged and confident in the Lord about the Thessalonians. We talked about this, that they are the evidence, they are the evidence of the gospel that works. <laughs> they are the evidence. Does the gospel work? Well, look at the Thessalonians. And Paul's encouraged that they will continue to do all that Paul's taught them. We'll come back to this in just a second. But again, you hear Paul's encouragement in this, don't you? Keep going. <laughs> keep, keep doing what you're doing. And then in verse 5, Paul turns this prayer request that he's asking of them and kind of turns it around and prays for them. There's almost like a, a, a pre-benediction here in verse 5 where Paul says this, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So let me ask you this question. What anchors our prayers? I think Paul anchors our prayers to these two things. To the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The love of God. The reminder that God is perfect in his love. That he is lavish and generous with his love. That he loves to love his children. And because his love is perfect, that we can be without fear. So he anchors our prayers to the love of God and he anchors them to the steadfastness of Christ. Steadfast is a word we don't use very often. I think we should recover that word. I don't know who I have to talk to about that, that we use that more regularly. It means enduring and persevering. The steadfastness of Christ. Christ doesn't grow weary. Jesus doesn't get tired of his bride. He doesn't falter or faint. To quote Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you're familiar with it, she writes, You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's proven in Christ who is steadfast. And so if this is how God loves his children, if Christ really is a sure and steady anchor for us, then we can pray with intentionality and urgency that the Lord would indeed accomplish all of his purposes through his word and would protect and preserve his children. So the first thing in Paul's instructions on how to live between this day and that day, he's like, pray. We pray. We pray with urgency. Second, we work. Now this is, to be fair, this is the largest section of the text. And these points, if you were evaluating the sermon, two is going to be bigger than one and three. 
So I'm going to try to work through it relatively quickly. Okay? The bulk of this chapter is devoted to work from verse 6 all the way through verse 15. So, So living between this day and that day includes working. And I'm putting the word diligence in there. Diligence is just a word that means intentionality or dedication. It means on purpose, which is the opposite of what Paul calls idleness. So this this long section of 6 through 15 is a long argument for faithful working. And he weaves in between what correction against idleness looks like, how to deal with it together in the church. So let's look at the text. Verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers... Brothers and sisters is the connotation in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's speaking to the whole church here. He kind of raises the bar, right? This is a spiritual matter of significant importance. The name of Jesus has been invoked. These aren't just Paul's good intentions or ideas. And what is the command, he says? To keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions you receive from us. So there are those who have been a part of the church who have ignored what Paul has told them about faithful laboring and diligence in their work. You catch that? They're not ignorant to it. They've heard what Paul said when he was with them. They've heard when his letter was read to them, and they're going, nope, I don't, I don't want to do that. In verse 11, he gives more detail. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The world is your soap opera. You are in everyone else's business and not really doing anything yourself. And note that Paul makes a really clear distinction here that's really important to where we're going in this text. Idleness is connected to refusal. These aren't people who are unable, for whatever reason, to work. Because These are those who are un willing. And rather than spending their time doing something productive, they're busybodies. They're meddling in the affairs of other people. And now, so the reason that some are idle, we don't totally know. So we can ask when we look at this, well, what was causing them to be idle? And there's a couple of reasons for that. Some scholars think that, that maybe they were just so focused on, on the end of the world that they kind of said, well, it's all going to burn, so we're just going to put on the sandwich board sign that says it's the end of the world or the end, the end is near and just walk around. And they were just hanging out till the end. It's the end of the world, and they know it, and they feel fine. That's just, that's the, they're just hanging on to that. They're just hanging on to that. Only like three people for a service even know who R.E.M. is. So, um, <laughs> right, maybe that's part of it, is they're just so focused on like, well, the end is near, so I guess none of this matters. That could be one reason why they've kind of given up faithful, given up faithful labor, although Paul doesn't directly connect what they believe about the end to their lack of working, but it's possible. Some scholars afford them, look, well, maybe they're just being really diligent in trying to share the gospel with people. So they've quit their job so they can be like full-time uh, missionaries. And that's a possibility, uh, except the fact that Paul's example to them as a missionary, as a church planter, as, a, as one who's sharing the gospel with them, the example he gives them is like, you don't, these are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to stop being fruitful in order to be fruitful in the, in the kingdom. So, so that example, for me, it seems a little tenuous. Uh, are they just misguided in their pursuit of ministry? Maybe, although that one's a little less, I think. The, the other one, which I think is, is interesting, is that how much of the culture, the Greek culture of the day, has infiltrated and is infiltrating into the church. 
Uh, manual laborers in ancient Greek culture was hard work, manual labor. And we're not talking like even like blue collar. We're talking like no collar. It was hard, menial, difficult work. And in seasons of uh, economic downturn, who bears the weight the most? Well, those who have the least. And so perhaps through persecution or just economic trouble, as happens in any society, uh, they have, some have become dependent on the charity of others. It's also possible, culturally speaking, uh, it's, it's likely from archaeological and sociological, uh, sorry, it's a big word, sociological uh, study that there were like guilds, if you will, unions of sorts within different spheres of labor. And so a, a stone cutter's guild, for example, would work with masonry and rocks. And it's very likely in an early first century Greek culture that those in a particular guild would have a regular routine of, of paying homage or worship to a deity of sorts. So to be a part of that guild meant you'd light your incense or give your offering to the god of stonecutters. And maybe, as a Christian, they're like, I don't think I should do that anymore. And now you're on the outs with the people you're supposed to be working with. So there's lots of, of, of reasons this could be. Uh, the whole idea of patronage, which is an idea we don't even have really a concept of, where you were kind of employee, but more of a lackey for someone with a lot of wealth to kind of just run their errands, and you'd kind of leech off their rich lifestyle, right? But in doing so, you might be going to get them bread some days, but you might also be going to bring a couple of prostitutes to their house. I mean, like, the, the wide range of what you would do for the sake of your patron, what would you be participating in? So there's, there's lots of stuff that could be going on that's causing this disconnect between faithful work and followers of Jesus. And there could be other reasons as well. But the reality of the specifics doesn't, doesn't really matter. At some point, Christ coming into the world had diminished or changed the importance of everyday work for these people. And some were using some aspect of, of Jesus' teaching, his second coming, his command to preach the gospel, his command to care for other people, generosity, they were using some aspect of Jesus' teaching and abusing it to justify their own idleness. That's what Paul's getting at here. It doesn't really matter why they're idle, but they're using truth, twisting it to justify idleness. They had a distorted view of the theology of work. They wouldn't say it that way. That's how I'm saying it. So I'd like to go there briefly, if we can. When the Bible talks about something we talk about something. The Bible's talking about work today. We're going to talk about work. I would like to briefly build a, a, a framework for a theology of work that we can operate with, all right? Now, it starts at the beginning. So I've, I've kind of highlighted five pillars, if you will. Uh, go with me if, if you'd like. You need to take a, take a stretch break or deep breath. Here we go. A good, I think a good biblical theology of work starts with a mandate from creation. It starts in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, we read that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That there is a creation mandate to work. And note, this is given to Adam before sin enters creation. Before sin fractures everything. God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Okay? Now, sin makes work harder, as we find out. After sin enters, God says, Oh, you'll continue to work all right, Adam, but not more than just fruit. The ground will also produce weeds and thorns. Thanks, Adam. Right? 
And Christ comes not to eliminate that command. It doesn't do, we're not do, done away with this, but he comes to redeem it. So Paul may have this idea in mind, uh, in view, when he says things like in verse 10, for when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. It's attached to what Paul says is given to all of us who are made in the image of God. And notice Paul says here, and this is very important, Paul says those who are not willing. There's a distinction here between ability and willingness. So that's the first thing, that there's a mandate, a design intention from God in creation for men and women to work. Two, the second pillar is that Christians are expected to work to the degree they're able. That's why Paul's talking about the difference between ability and willingness. Now, so let me be clear. The picture here is not one of only earning. He's not necessarily saying this is only paid work. Paul's just talking about faithful laboring. When we talk about labor, we, we attach capital L labor to employment, to paycheck. And that's part of what's happening here, but that's not the only sphere of faithful laboring. If we're going to build out an entire theology of work. There's industriousness and faithfulness and using your gifts. Many of you put in long hours working at things that don't pay you anything. Some of you volunteer your time and your energy at local nonprofits, which don't cut you a paycheck because you're a volunteer. Some of you coach youth sports, right? That is unpaid work hanging out with those 12 year olds. Sometimes you're like, I should get combat pay for this. Right? How many of you cook meals or clean your own house or mow your own lawn? Right? And not to the exclusion of dads in the room, shout out to the dads, but because parenting is a joint operation, period. But, but moms in the room, can I just give you a special shout out to those of you who are caring for children and doing some extra work and teaching them on top of the other things that demand your attention? That's hard work. That's faithful labor. There are hundreds, if not thousands of things that are done to meet the needs of others, to better the community. And many of these things don't come with a paycheck. Nevertheless, they can all be work. To quote Colin Nickel from a, a project he's put together, or at least he's a part of, called the Theology of Work Project. You can tell where that comes from. He says this, Christians are not necessarily expected to earn money, but to work to support themselves, their families, and the church and community. Why Paul says, Christians are called to work as they are able. Third part of our theology of work. Christian work should be excellent work because work is witness. Failure to work with excellence reflects not only the, on the person but on the community to which that person belongs. If Christians are regularly known for cutting corners, if Christians are regularly known for shoddy workmanship or for being stingy or for being lazy, it tells the world that the effect of the gospel in the life of a person is it makes them lazy. It makes them self-centered. Paul said this already in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you remember, that they should work quietly, said with their own hands, minding their own affairs. Why? So that they might walk properly among outsiders. If they're going to criticize us, Paul says, let them criticize us because our message reminds them that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Don't, if but don't let them criticize us for just being bums or bad employees or lazy. As an example, I have some friends who served for a number of years as missionaries in Mexico. 
And one time when we were visiting, there was another family who was looking to possibly join them on the mission field. And part of their primary responsibility in being there was building relationships. They're in this new community. They're trying to just build relationships with students and young adults and families and whomever they they could. And the husband of this family who was coming to join them on the field was a pretty good basketball player. So he would spend some of his time playing basketball with the kids, the older kids in particular as they came out of school, some of the young men on the weekends. And they talk about life and faith, and that was a bridge to conversation, a bridge to relationship. However, some of the slightly older men and women in the community saw this American man out there day in and day out playing basketball, and they wondered, does this guy have a job? Does he work? See, culturally, he was seen as idle, not productive, and it hindered his ability to make inroads to others in the community who culturally prized work and industriousness. Now, I'm not criticizing this family or the missions that work that they were doing, but I only share that to highlight what Paul seems to be saying. How you work in your particular context affects how people see your message. It affects your witness. And I think Paul's just being real clear here that Christians, Thessalonians, Fargoans, and wherever else you live, Christians are to be models of this kind of work ethic, one that values hard work and diligence, not at the expense of community, not at the expense of generosity, not at the expense of family responsibilities, but are to be this kind of model. Paul says himself, look at verse 7, I was an example to you when I was with you. He goes, we weren't idle when we were with you. We didn't just sit on our hands. Verse 8, we didn't even eat your bread. We paid you for it. But with toil and labor, Paul continues, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, we worked hard to be an example to you so that you might turn and be an example to others. Verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. First century philosophers could go town to town peddling their ideas as great thinkers. And it would be expected that as your prestige rose... Well, it would be just expected that the people in that town would give you good meals and let you stay in their homes and provide for you. And Paul says, we didn't want to do any of that that would hinder your ability to hear what we had to say. That you weren't just welcoming us because we we were prestigious or because you thought we were some kind of important thing. Because we're not. We want you to hear the message. We wanted to model for you the effect of the gospel in the work of a person. Which was in direct contrast to the culture in which they lived and to how they were before they followed Jesus. So in this way, Paul's saying, work is witness. Like it, the fourth part of our theology of work, that Christian work should be excellent because work is a witness, but it should also be excellent because work is worship. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, part of Adam's design was one who works. So in his working, he is honoring the one who created him. Have you ever started a project And then you're working through the challenges of it and you finally complete it and you have that sense of like, I did it, right? The picture is centered on the wall and level. The bread is bread. It's edible, right? Right? Or maybe uh, for those of you in in the sciences, right, you run an experiment and you're like, yes, it did what it was supposed to do and I didn't blow something up, right? Why why that little sense of like elation, well, because it worked as it, does, as it was intended to work. And so as the one who created it or hung the picture or made the bread, you go like, yeah, all right, I did that. 
right? That's just a tiny sliver snapshot of, of what it means in this case, that if, if, if Adam, designed by God, is working faithfully, if we, designed by God, are going about the way God has designed us, it says something about the creator who made us. See, we too are designed by God We can honor or dishonor God in the way in which we go about our work. Just like we can honor or dishonor God in the way we go about lots of things. Paul frames it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he talks about living lives pleasing to God, right? We understand that we can do things to please or displease God, right? Sin displeases God and out of our love for him and our spirit-empowered desire for him, we seek to love him and serve him and, and please him and live for him with our lives, so, so it, it comes out clearly in things like we flee sexual immorality, we, we, we push against pride and arrogance and self-centeredness and all kinds of evil. And Paul just adds idleness to that list of here's a tangible expression of how you can walk in a way that worships your creator and pleases him. So while we can dishonor and displease God in idleness, we can honor God and worship him in our faithful labor. The work that we have to do, think about this, no matter how menial it seems, no matter how seemingly insignificant it might seem, no matter how difficult your work in any given situation might be, and this is to children in the room who are cleaning their rooms or doing their homework, this is to moms and dads who are picking up after the children who didn't clean their rooms and helping them with their homework, right? Every bit of work that we have before us, no matter how insignificant it might feel or how challenging or how many times, every bit of it is meaningful and is an opportunity to worship God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, in whatever you do, whatever means whatever, everything, in everything you do, work heartily. Why? As for the Lord, he's worthy, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward because you are serving the Lord Christ. We should do our best work because work is worship. And finally, our theology of work must include caring for those who are unable to care for themselves. Our fifth little pillar, if you will, for this theology of work is that work enables us to care for those in need. Paul is a clear advocate for generosity towards those who are in need. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul commends the church. He commends them like, well done, guys, for their kindness and generosity towards others, towards their brothers and sisters in need. And he encourages them here, as we started, don't grow weary in doing good. And this is in part uh, part helpful for us as a guard against cynicism. I, I joke that I am a recovering cynic. The phone rings here a couple times each day. Sometimes they're telling us our car's extended warranty is about to expire. Sometimes... Sometimes it's just someone asking for assistance. And, and occasionally we can actually help them. We can sometimes point them to a resource here in our community that someone's better equipped to help with housing or, or, or uh, long-term food uh, issues or, or uh, jobs, right? Things that, there are people in this community doing fantastic work in those areas and we can help connect people to those resources, And sometimes it's just a little help for gas or food or to help pay a utility bill. And so we've set up a process to help us determine that what is genuine need and the places we can do the most good. I don't know where Marty is at the moment, um, but 
he works uh, really hard to help us do that well. Because we've had many conversations with lots of people. And we've all been told maybe part of the story and sometimes just flat out lies from people. And that can make us less willing in the future to be generous to others in genuine need. We've all experienced that. And if you haven't experienced that, just let me encourage you to live a few more years and you will experience that. So Paul presses here on this theology of work and how it relates to generosity with this phrase, willing. Willing is a fantastic word. It has this connotation of desire. It's, like a, it's a want to. And even layered, it's like a want to want to. Because you can give into something and not be willing, right? You can reluctantly agree to something. Parents, when you ask your kids to complete that one chore, and they do it, but you wouldn't classify it as willing, but they did it, right? Paul is saying here in verses 9 and 10, or excuse me, 10 and 11, that there are some among them who are just flat out refusing to work. That some are able, but not willing. And Paul is having none of that. He's told them in person, and he's telling them by letter that those who are unwilling don't qualify for the assistance and generosity that he has in other places told the church to be about offering generosity and assistance to care for those in need. And this creates a tension for us because it is often difficult for us to determine from our limited perspective who's being lazy and who might be willing, but for whatever reason that we can't even know necessarily, any number of reasons is just unable And this is something that can cause division even amongst Christians where theology and social policy and these sorts of things overlap, right? Because we can tend to err on, on the side of those who are striving for industriousness, right? We can lean on the verse, put our weight on the verse that says, hey man, if you don't work, you don't eat. Not my problem. We can lean heavy on that verse. And it's, it's in the Bible and it's in context, Okay? But we can also lean heavy on the other side, on the side of mercy, and be like, well, but we shouldn't grow weary in doing good, right? We're still called to to generosity. And there are differences of opinion in terms of whose job it is to do this. Is this the individual's job? Is this the institution, like the church's job, to meet these needs? Is this that of the state or something else? And so the question we have to ask is this. Because I don't have a clear cut and dry answer like, well, here's how it works. Done. Take this home. This is for us to wrestle with as individuals and as a church. So we have to ask this question. Does our grid for how we care for people, in light of what God has told us about work and how we care for people, does it take into consideration all of God's word on the matter? Can we put into practice both the scripture that encourages generosity, even at personal cost, even at risk of being taken advantage of, and the encouragement and the call from God to the church for gainful and fruitful labor? The answer is both and. <laughs> yes. And this can be sticky. And passages like this should cause us to wrestle. So this is that part of that take home for us right? What does this look like in my day today? both in my own view of myself and the labors that God has put in front of me to, to work in, in the way I view the needs of others. Recognizing that we are all in the process of growing 
being sanctified, that the crusty cynicism that still wants to crowd in around my heart is also being worked on. Praise the Lord, as is yours. To quote Colin Nichol again from the Theology Work Project, I found this helpful. He says, it's clear that Paul has in mind both that all the Thessalonian Christians should work to the degree they are able and that the church should take care of those in genuine need. These are not mutually exclusive. So here's how I button it all up. Uh, I put it all on a, on a slide. Um, we'll post this in our notes as well um, on the weekly update. A biblical theology of work has in view a picture of and is in practice an extension of, so it has a view of and is a practice of, an extension of, the kingdom of God advancing on the earth. As God's people work, they bear witness to the gospel. They worship God with their labors and their first fruits, and they are able to give generously as a tangible expression of God's generosity to us in Christ Jesus. If I could boil down a theology of work into a paragraph, that's what I got. I tried to make it shorter, couldn't make it any shorter. That's what you get. So we're instructed to not only work, but verses 6 and verses 14 and 15, we do so with a little bit of self-discipline in the church. This is the last part of this before we get to the, the waiting part. We firmly and gently admonish and correct those who are idle. Notice the strong language Paul uses. He says, we, we have nothing to do with the one who is idle. It's akin to not participating in his idleness. So we're not allowed to treat it like it's not a big deal. And in verse 14, Paul says that they should be addressed. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. That's interesting, right? This idea of shame. Something is shameful when it's exposed. The, the idea here is that it should be relatively obvious that the one who is idle is out of step with God's command and is out of step with God's people. It's like everyone's walking this way and this is the one person's like, oh wait, everyone's going that way. It should be obvious. This correction and this shame felt then serves as a warning. And then look what Paul says in verse 15. And this is really important. Paul says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him like a brother. Paul says that he's not your enemy. She's not your enemy. Don't take shots at him. Don't attack, but warn now, there's more here than we have time for, but there's something here about loving and direct discipline that the church practices inside with one another. And Paul says we should practice this kind of admonishment in-house as brothers and sisters who love one another, that we might speak lovingly and directly to help one another see blind spots that we don't see ourselves so that the whole body might be healthier and better cared for. Because the other part of it is there are likely needs among us, genuine needs among us, that we don't know because they never come to the surface. Which is why we will continue to encourage regular and meaningful participation in community. We know that the way we practice community groups is not the only way to do community. It's just the way we've chosen to do community. We think it works generally for our purposes. And so we're going to strongly encourage you to participate in that community life because it's in those places where you can be known, where you can know others, where you can be encouraged, where others might be able to challenge you on some things, which you all need, by the way, as do I, where you and I can be corrected in love and cared for when we need it. 
So how do we live between this day and that day? We work. We work according to God's design. And third and finally, we wait. And this one's short, I promise. We, I used the word urgency when I spoke of prayer, and I think it's a good word to use because there's a difference between urgent and frantic. Urgent is important. Frantic is consuming, all-consuming. Urgent is timely. Frantic is rushed. Urgent is significant. Frantic is scattered. See, there's an urgency to our time here between this day and that day. We recognize our time is short. There's work to do. There's needs to be met. And we all know that on that day, when Jesus returns, Paul says it's going to be sudden. Not surprising for believers, but sudden. But we aren't frantic. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. And I don't want to overemphasize it, but I'll say it anyway. As Christians, we should be the last people to freak out about stuff. We should be the least freak-outable people. That's not a word, but it is now. Right? Paul has spent the better part of eight chapters over two letters reminding them, remember what you already know. Remember what I already taught you. Hold fast to the things you know to be true. Keep doing those things. Don't stop. Keep going. So we pray with urgency, we work with diligence, and we wait, Paul says in verse 16, in his closing benediction, with peace. Look at verse 16. This is his blessing. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord of peace give you peace. There's another instance in the New Testament where Paul's, uh, excuse me, yeah, where Paul refers to the God of peace, but this is a unique way of phrasing this. The Lord of peace himself give you peace. If anyone is able to settle you, If anyone is able to cause you to not have worry, it's the one who is himself unshakable. There is a peace that is unique to followers of Jesus. It's not a meditative tranquility that's detached from the world. It's not a facade of calm that we put in front of us. Well, behind it is like crazy anxiety. It's not fake. It's not forced. It's not manipulated. It's not driven by spiritual superiority like, look how at peace I am. Look how spiritual I am. That's not it. There's a peace that is settled in something outside of our circumstances. So that circumstances, although they affect us, don't, as we talked about last week, easily shake us. Notice what Paul says. He says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. He's including everything, good things, bad things, hard things, terrible things. That's the blessing, that you and I would have peace at all times and in every way. And Paul's fully aware of persecution and suffering. And he is confident that God is able to grant us peace even in the midst of everything that we might encounter. Peace like this is not the absence of difficulty. Peace like this is not the removal always of trouble. Peace like this doesn't always come with an answer to the question of why. Peace from the Lord of peace is the promise that he himself will be with us, that he will never forsake us, that he is at work in us, sanctifying us, and that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. All of this is found in Christ. So for the one here, even this morning, who might not know Christ, or maybe you're new to this faith in Christ, can I just encourage you that this, in him, in Jesus only, is this kind of peace. There is nothing else and no one else that can do for you what Christ has done. 
and by the Holy Spirit, and only by the Holy Spirit, who lives and dwells inside of each believer, each follower of Jesus, not only can change your heart, but change your desires to calm your worries and enable you to live differently than you otherwise would. And for those of you who's been, who've been walking with Jesus for a while, who maybe like me are prone to being cynical, a little crusty around the heart sometimes, can I just encourage you that all the promises of the gospel for your salvation are still true? They're still at work? That there's grace today for you as well? See, Paul closes this letter with a brief note in verse 17 that he has written this with his own hand. A sign of his genuineness. He's not dictating these words for someone else to write down for him. He's, someone's not just collecting things that Paul has said and sending it off as a letter. Paul is saying, these are my specific things for you because I love you and I care about you and I want to encourage you to persevere. So for us, as we live here between these two days, Paul's reminder is to not grow weary in doing what we've been called and empowered to do. To pray with urgency, to work with diligence and to wait for him. Trusting in his promise, trusting in his timing, controlled and filled with his peace. If I can pray for us what Paul prays for the church here. Verse 5, may the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God. May he direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. And then as he closes, may the Lord of peace himself give us peace. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. That when we are weary, you are strong. When we are unsure, you are steady. I pray you would lift our eyes to see Jesus afresh today. To be reminded of his goodness and grace to us. And that would reignite and ignite in us a, a sense of, a fresh sense of, of awe and gratitude. If there's places in our lives that have grown uh, uh, hard or stiff or crusty, where we've become cynical or even lazy, would you gently, even today, Holy Spirit, press on those areas? Bring them to the light that there might be conviction and then, Holy Spirit, would you bring healing and restoration as well. Encourage us as we come to the table that we would rest in the ultimate and finished work of Jesus for us. In his name we pray. Amen.